This is John Anderson Direct with Richard Epstein. Professor Richard Epstein is the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at the New York University School of Law, where he serves as a director of the Classical Liberal Institute. Professor Epstein is also the James Parker Hall Distinguished Service Professor of Law Emeritus at the University of Chicago, and the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institute. He has been a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences since 1985. He's authored many books. He writes a weekly column for the Hoover Institute's Defining Ideas and a monthly column for the Las Vegas Journal Review. He also writes regularly in the Wall Street Journal, in Forbes.com and other publications. Today we'll be discussing the recent Supreme Court decision to overturn Road versus Wade uh, and what it portends for the future of American society, uh, who makes the law, uh, who's accountable and what it means, frankly, for America's leadership globally as that country appears so deeply divided now. Well, Richard, thank you very much for joining us. We in Australia, uh, and I suspect in much of Europe and the Western world, find the whole Roe versus Wade and its overturning difficult to understand because it goes to the issue of who makes major decisions like this more than what the decisions are, if I can put it crudely, as I understand it. But you've been writing about this since right back at the time of the original decision. So can we begin? I thought it was extraordinary that in the build-up to the much-anticipated decision um, that overturned the famous Roe versus Wade decision, uh, and, and that was, of course, the Dobbs versus Jackson decision, the whole thing was leaked to the media, an outlet called Politico, the month before it was to be officially announced in June of this year. Uh, that created something, as we see it uh, from the other side of the pond, uh, to a, a great media sensation an immediate popular rejoicing on one hand and enormous protest on the other. This is pretty interesting stuff, the leaking of a major decision like this. Any thoughts on why it was leaked and who was looking to gain by it, what they were hoping to achieve? Well, first of all, nobody has ever identified the person who is responsible for the leak, although everybody knows that it has to be someone. There is speculation that the leak was by one of the justices, highly unlikely, by one of the clerks, more likely, by one of the other people who work in the Supreme Court who are not particularly a clerk or a judge, one of the functionaries, office members, and so forth. And nobody knows. Uh, The next question is, which side leaked it? I I think most people believe uh, that it was the uh, pro-abortion forces that did it in the hope that they would be able to create such a stir that they would get one or more of the Supreme Court justice, actually they would need two, to change their positions uh, so that Roe would be allowed to live on to fight yet another day. Uh, Nobody can prove that, but let's put it in this particular fashion. Uh, The conservatives never mobilized in a kind of political fashion. And so it wasn't as though once the decision came out, you saw large numbers of conservative crowds out there cheering it on. Uh, But the progressives are much more prone to take to the streets. They've done it both before this decision was come down and they continue to do it afterwards. And the theory was that it would be a combination of public awareness on the one hand and intimidation on the other hand that might lead it to tip the balance. I think the psychology that they had on this, if this was the psychology, was misguided 
My sense is that most people in the position of Supreme Court justices would, if anything, become more rigid and more stubborn on the particular issue if it turned out they believed that they were being subject to external pressures of one kind or another. Uh, So as best we can tell, nothing really shifted. Uh, There was a 5-1 split on the majority side. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts desperately wanted to split the baby and to sort of move the period at which you could have an abortion back from, say, 23 weeks to 15 weeks or 10 weeks, whatever it is. Uh, The other five basically took the position that Roe was essentially corrupt root and branch. And so they said that they wanted to turn it to the legislature. And just by way of an observation, I don't know if you know this, but my initial legal training is that of an Englishman. Um, I studied law first at Oxford in 1964 to 66 and was very much schooled in the system of parliamentary supremacy, which dominates uh, that particular company. And so it took me a little time to get used to the American tradition, uh, which does have this sort of erratic and inconsistent form of judicial intervention. Everybody believes in two propositions. One is that major political decisions ought to be made by the political branches of government, except when fundamental rights are involved. What they disagree about is what are the fundamental rights that are involved in some of these cases. And so what happens is we go both ways. Um, If you're trying to talk about guns, which is another one of the issues that came up, uh, the progressive left said this is the kind of complex issue that just has to be left to the legislature. Uh, don't sell me anything, a bill of goods about the Second Amendment and the right to keep and bear arms. And then all of a sudden the roles switch when you start dealing with the abortion cases. So um, this is a long-standing problem that we have in our particular country. And uh, the impatience that one sees it being addressed with mainly on the progressive side at this point in time uh, gives you pause as to how long we could keep the ship of state together, given the huge stresses that have been placed upon it. Yeah, because it's worth making the point, I think, that uh, Australia is a federation, unlike Britain. But in this country, in the same way as in Britain, the parliaments are supreme. They've made the laws. The parliamentarians who make those laws are then accountable to the people. And the courts essentially keep to interpreting the law, although there's always a bit of controversy around the edges on it. The critical point that uh, in a way illustrates this is that I suspect most Australians would know the names of more American high court Uh, Supreme Court judges than they would its equivalent in Australia, because in Australia it's not politicised in the same way. No, no. I mean, look, when I grew up, uh, Fulger and Dixon were the two judges that were most known uh, through the Privy Council and so forth, and they were private law experts uh, whose judgments were strong enough that you actually read them as a student when you were in England. Uh, But in the United States, um, it has always been a case that constitutional issues start to matter not just on the structural issues where they still matter in Australia, but also on individual rights. And in 1973, when the decision first came down, the basic conundrum that most people face was as follows. Uh, As early as 1905, the most emblematic case, but not the sole case, involving the constitutional protection of economic liberties was a case called Lochner against New York, which held by a 5-4 vote, so you know it was tense, that any statute which imposed a maximum hours law of 10 hours per day or 60 hours per week was an interference with the freedom of contract that people had. It's a decision that I supported under the American Constitution, but was highly unfavorably received by most. And the first progressive wave in the New Deal unceremoniously overturned that decision somewhere between 1937 and 1941. 1967 comes along, and there's a case called Griswold against uh, Connecticut, 
in which the statute of state is one that prohibits the sales of contraceptives even to married couples. And what the Supreme Court did, chiefly through Justice William O. Douglas, was to say that there was something either in the Due Process Clause or in the Ninth Amendment about reserved rights, which meant that this statute was an interference with private liberty. And immediately, most of the Democrats, liberals, there were no progressives at that time in the sense that we use the term today, said, wait a second, uh, we decided in, Lock in, in the Lochner decision and all those cases that this is all to be left to the legislature. Now we're turning around on contraceptives. How can we possibly do this? And there was a big fight as to whether or not rights about reproduction and so forth would be appropriate. That case was narrowly decided, applied only to marital couples. Within five years, it applied to all people. Why, then you would ask, did it not create this huge response? Because essentially, Griswold was a mop-up operation. At that time, every state but one had allowed the sale of contraceptives. And so this was not trying to force people into a different path. It was essentially finishing the job as it were. When you got to Roe v. Wade, this has always been contentious. But I think every state in the union had some statute which made at least some abortions illegal, although there were some variations amongst them. And as one of my colleagues from Chicago, Jerry Rosenberg, always likes to point out, in 1972, there were in fact 250,000 legal abortions in the United States, given all the loopholes. But what Roe did is it simply said, we're going not from 49 to 50 states, we're going from zero to 50. And it turns out that's a much more controversial issue. It's not just Catholics, it's all sort of traditional moralists who are trying to figure out when does human life begin. And one of the answers that's always on the table is at the time of conception, on the theory that's the one discontinuous event that exists. Uh, before conception, there are a lot of gametes out there, it doesn't mean much. After conception, there's only one uh, that's allowed, one thing there. And well, therefore you become a Catholic and say you can't do it later. And the other people said, no, 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 we have to do it a little bit later and there'd be more compromise of all sorts of debates about this. And in the end, what the Supreme Court decided in Roe is that it's a matter of trimesters. Can't do anything in the first trimester, can regulate safety in the second trimester, and can regulate anything in the third trimester. And so, uh, as Phil Curlin said when I wrote my paper many years ago, where, in fact, does the Constitution and the Due Process Clause supply us with guides as to what the trimesters ought to be? So most academics at that time whether they were pro or anti-abortion rights, sort of came to the conclusion that this was a judicial excess. But somehow or other, as the precedent became more heavily entrenched, all of these initial doubts started to disappear. It was no longer comparing economic liberties against reproductive rights. It was just a very bold assertion that there's a fundamental right that each woman has, given her personal autonomy, to decide whether and if so when to terminate a pregnancy. And in fact, the political side of this has been more protective of the abortion right uh, than was the decision. Because if you looked at the recent effort in the uh, Congress to worry about this and to codify the sort of anti, the pro-Roe sentiment, they were willing to say you could have an abortion up to birth. 38 weeks is something you really think ought to be there. So we are essentially in a huge state of intellectual disagreement. And the way I like to sort of summarize my views is, as I said, when I wrote about this opinion in 1973, I was like many other people very critical of it, more on the moral grounds than on the institutional grounds that you referred to. Um, uh, and you know, you had that particular debate, but when you try to overturn a president of 49 years, the joke that I always used to say was on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, it's such a terrible decision, you overturn it. 
And on Tuesday, Thursdays, and Saturday, um, it turns out that it's an established precedent. You dare not do it. And on Sunday, you give up and you don't think about the issue. And so I think, you know, I'm one of the kind of few relatively so-called conservatives. I'm more of a classical liberal voices, which was generally torn by this situation. Most of the conservative press uh, has only the reaction good riddance. Religious press, particularly on the Catholic side, said this is only the way to restore on the dignity to all persons born or unborn. And, and so what you do is you see this really polar divide, and there's very little chance of getting compromise. And so that's why you see people taking to the streets. It does, in one sense, I think, play to my mind that uh, uh, Justice Alito, in his decision, he said... Uh, that Roe versus Wade was largely based on irrelevant or wrong historical analysis, none of which had any bearing on the Constitution. In other words, he was saying it was judicial activism uh, at the time. And I think what you've said confirms that. Um, how would you describe the importance of correcting or turning away from that judicial activism? and trying to restore what we might call black letter law in Australia. In other words, again, more on the issue of who makes the decision than what the issue is. Yeah, well, see, look, one of the problems that you have is that the American left today does not care about any of the so-called substantive objections to Roe. They just think it's right. Uh, but I think that they were wrong and, you know, that it was very dubious at the time. And this is what the basic problem is. It's one of stereo decisis. If you think a decision is wrong, does it last or not last? It, when I was a student in England, this was a constant problem. And uh, can you have a case which overrules the case that says you can't overrule cases without making that case overruled itself? And as I recall, just after I graduated from English law school, there was a sort of memorandum that came down from the House of Lords. It wasn't a decision saying, at this particular point, we regard stare decisis as a strong presumption, but not as an absolute. So we don't have to wait for Parliament to correct really egregious mistakes. And that's the kind of standard that Justice Alito wanted to talk about. So in his particular situation, he thought it was quite different. We talk about this case than all the other cases I've mentioned, like Griswold against Connecticut and the Obergefell versus Hodges cases, where essentially it was quite clear that politically um, same-sex marriage was on an enormously strong run. And probably today, if you put it to a vote in most states, it would carry in 48 or 49 states. I mean, this issue as a political discourse is over. There are just too many people, myself included, who have relatives who are same-sex couples. They have children, all the rest of this stuff. What are you supposed to do? And so it's become completely accepted. That's not true about Roe. On the metaphysics, it's the other way around. And so as Justice Alito does it, he kind of does two things simultaneously. First, he tries to trash the decision, and he's pretty good at doing that, explaining why it's wrong. And then what he wants to say is this is such an enormous issue, given it has to do with the status of unborn life, that it meets the egregious standards so I can overturn it. The other cases do not. Justice Thomas writes an opinion consistent with his views that there is no such thing as substantive due process. Uh, this is a once a liberal position that famous now deceased lawyer, John Hart Ely, used to say that's like talking about green shades of lovingness or some such thing about that, a contradiction in terms. And that turns out Thomas's position. So he's not worried about abortion as such. So he wants to reconsider all the substantive due process decisions that have corrected individual rights. And that in turn, just yesterday, led to a motion in the House of Representatives to say, hey, we have to codify Obergefell 
because the Supreme Court's going to overturn it. Uh, that's eight votes to one against it. Uh, but the whole point about this movement, at least on the side of the left, is to make it look as though it's much more significant, comprehensive, and persuasive than otherwise, and an effort to try and rally the force against it. And it's had its effect. I would say the approval rating of the Supreme Court has gone down. Uh, the last poll that I looked at had the favorable rating at around 38%. It's probably down to 10 or 15 points because the court has been taking an incredible pummeling out of this situation. Extraordinary. I don't think in this country we've, I've never even seen a poll on how the standing of the high court uh, is at any point in time. It's, it's a, an incredible contrast. But to pick up your point about the way in which liberals, as you might call it, others might use that, I think it's outdated language now, the left, but or progressives, um, to come to, in fact, one of their own, the late feminist and pro-abortion Supreme Court Judge uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. As I understand it, she herself famously argued that Roe versus Wade actually set women's rights back in the long run, or that it would set them back in the long run, as its unnecessary and sweeping judgment created a pro-life movement that didn't exist before. To what extent do you think she was right in, in saying that Roe versus Wade created its own grave diggers? Well, it certainly created a very strong opposition. In 1968, this issue came up in the presidential campaign. And I could still remember that Hubert Humphrey was asked, what did he think about the constitutionalization of the right to abortion? He says, why are you asking me that question? This is just a matter of state law. And he just shrugged it off as being fantasy. Uh, Ruth Ginsburg was a friend of mine. Um, and, you know, she was very much torn. She was a feminist, but she was a feminist of the old school. And what I mean by that, she was mainly concerned about how rights and duties were divided inside marriage. And she famously used to say all the time that, you know, I had to do the nursing, but Marty used to take care of the diapers. And she tried to figure out equality in the custom to marriage relations. Modern feminists are much more militant on this. They want to rechange the entire society. So that essentially there's equal participation of men and women in virtually all works of life, no matter what the relative qualifications are, whether you're talking about carpenters or nurses, doesn't matter to them. And I think Ruth held that. Then she gets on the Supreme Court. And those remarks, I don't remember the exact year they were made, but I think they were sort of 35 or 40 years ago. And when she's on the court, she becomes the icon of the American world. And so her decisions essentially are much more pro-choice uh, than her early remarks on that issue. And I don't think this is a kind of strong competition. This is somebody whose estimations start to change both on the passage of time and where she sits. If you knew something about, I mean, there's something about American law that's worth mentioning. There was a prolonged movement in 1992 in a case called Casey involving a Pennsylvania statute to overturn Roe. And most people thought that it would be overturned. Uh, but Justice O'Connor and several others balked at that. And so instead of having a challenge to it 19 years after it was passed, we waited 49 years. And it turns out that changes the entire complication. So lots of people have changed their views about how these cases have run. Interestingly enough, they've changed them in both directions. I mean, one of the things that the pro-life movement has been most effective in doing is using sonograms and other kinds of diagrams and pictures to tell you what a fetus looks like when it's 15 Oh, weeks of age. And, you know, it unmistakably resembles a human being. Very primitive in its outline. It looks like a sketch rather than a full thing, but it's pretty hard to say it's just a clump of cell. And what's happened is that influences the rate of abortion. And so one of the strategies that many people think sensible is for the pro-life movement to constantly pound on the fact, look, young women, look, 
what you are doing and change your behavior. We may not be able to stop you as a matter of law, but you should think twice about this. And I think that actually has some effectiveness on it. So to give you a more complete statement of the polls, is Americans are deeply divided both ways. On the moral question, a majority of this country thinks that abortions are immoral, say two to one. On the legal question, the majority thinks it ought to be legal by two to one, right? Which means there's a middle third which believes A, it's legal and B, it's immoral, um, which is a very complicated kind of position to take. And so the views start to fragment. And what's happened is at this point, what kicks in is something we did not understand earlier on, is the depolarization across states. So in New York state, they already have all sorts of statutes to make sure that Roe is going to be respected as a matter of legislation, consistent with what uh, Justice Alito had said. And in other states, it turns out the red states um, and South Dakota, for example, they say, you know, we really think that we're going to protect the life of the mother and they'll do it even under circumstances where I I think that it's quite ill-advised to start to do that. So it's completely bifurcated. And what's going to be the next battleground, John? It's very simple. Uh, Suppose uh, there's a woman in a red state who wants to get an abortion in a blue state. Can somebody in the red state send it to the blue state or is that going to be a crime under red state law? Can somebody from a blue state send the money into a red state in order to facilitate that? Or is that going to be a crime under the, the red state law? We have all these conflicts of law issues that are just waiting to blow this country up further. And I have to say, I have no confidence that we'll be able to keep this conversation at a reasonably sensible level. Uh, There's already extensive picketing, I'm sure you're aware around the justices house, very loud, very raucous, even the neighbors now are deeply upset. Uh, It turned out that 15 members of Congress, I think were arrested just yesterday for going on Supreme Court grounds outside the court and protesting abortion. And they were led away by the police uh, because they were blocking traffic. Uh, So uh, the response that you get is, some kind of action which is a cross between informational picketing on the one hand and not so subtle coercion on the other hand. And there's no sign that any of this activity is going to abate quickly. You paint a very bleak picture. As I sit here as an Australian, thinking to myself, it was an American only recently, a friend who said to me, in today's world, you have to have a policeman globally, a global policeman, and you want that policeman to be compassionate and um, intentional and a good guy. And we look here and we see a country that many of us admire deeply tearing itself apart. And to hear you say that you really have serious doubts about how this might land is pretty sobering stuff, Richard. It really is. Well, let me put it the other way because I happen to agree with you. I am a believer in what we used to call Pax Americana, as were many Australians. And this started with the total dominance that the United States and the British and the Australian and the Commonwealth forces were able to create at the end of the Second World War, right? Yeah. And essentially, we all believe that it should be benevolent, that we started to figure out how you release colonies and make them independent and so forth. Um, You start to put together a NATO-type organization, a CETO-type organization. Turned out there was a strong degree of bipartisan support at that particular point in time. So this was not a Democratic versus Republican interest. 
man named Vandenberg, a senator from New Jersey, I think. I can't always remember. You know, he was one of the Republicans who took the party away from isolationism. Everybody understood just how close things were uh, before the United States got involved, first with the Atlantic Charter, the Lend-Lease Program, and then the full-scale invasion. And people kind of thought that. American views on the military use of the policies are every bit as divided as they are in Roe v. Wade. Um, that is, if you look at the way in which woke instruction takes place in the service academies and so forth, and you look at the way in which the political divides have taken place, the American military has been heavily compromised. There's, there's this battle over vaccines and the current administration may in fact dismiss as many as 40,000 people for refusing to take a shot, which in my view is actually quite dangerous and has become more so um, over time, uh, so that the enlistments in the United States military are down at this particular point in time, just as the willingness of people to serve as policemen is down in many places in the United States. Because what happens is if you go in there, you're afraid that you are going to be subject to these same kinds of withering attacks that have taken place uh, with respect to the abortion issues. The right on this position tends to talk. It's more intellectual at this time, doesn't take pretty much to the streets. The left is the other way around. And we have a political leadership in Washington now of Biden, which is much further to the left than anything that we've imagined. And so what happens is if I were Australia, I would be very unhappy about what I think to be the kind of loss of moral purpose and unified strength that characterized American foreign policy for many, many years. So uh, what you're seeing in abortion is just one of many, many issues on, on which this kind of decline in America is starting to take place. How one starts to turn about, I cannot always say. It's certainly not through the highly imperfect Mr. Donald Trump. I mean, having a Biden-Trump election in 2024 would be an unmitigated disaster in my situation. But what we have to do is to step back from the current situation and figure out where we've gone wrong in order to lower the heat on one thing, to improve the unity of this particular country, and to make sure uh, that we don't get one side treating the other side as though they're pariahs, white supremacists, or something else. So what I'm reporting here is a very uncomfortable situation. I'm an academics. Thus far, mercifully, I've escaped any direct exposure to this. Uh, but I can tell you, uh, more and more of my contemporaries, even people 10 years younger than me, are now retiring from academics, and they all give the same explanation. It was wonderful when we were at the peak of our career that we had a kind of golden age of intellectual earnestness on the one hand and genuine toleration on the other. And the current environment is simply so intolerable, I would rather retire than be faced by younger colleagues and particularly by graduate students who have complete impatience with every kind of rational discourse or everything nice about Western civilization that I was prepared to say. Uh, so what you're seeing in abortion is not atypical to what is happening in the United States. Uh, uh, Spiral Agnew had a famous phrase called the silent majority, and it wasn't silent, and it probably wasn't a majority when he said it, but my own sense in the United States is that the left is now in power. It senses it will lose much of its power in uh, the November election, so it's going for broke in an effort when it has these slender majorities to convert all their preferences into law. Um, and the more they do that, the more likely it is that the elections are going to shift pretty emphatically in the other direction. And the last thing you want to have is to move from one extreme to another. And it's extremely difficult to sort of lower the temperature and to increase the discourse. I went into academics because I like to talk, right? I didn't go into academics because I like to pick, what? 
ideas. Ideas matter. I would, yeah, ideas matter. I mean, and you know, I've been consistently engaged. It's the only thing I've ever done in my life. There was a period of um, genuine uncertainty about all these things when I first entered teaching in 1968. I mean, there were lots of complications going on with Vietnam and the domestic stuff at home, but that was child's play uh, to what we're seeing today. And what I reported, I think is really very ominous. If decent people in the senior ranks start to retire because they can't take the heat, it's going to make these institutions more radical than they've ever been. And if the elite institutions in this country become all hard left, Lord knows what's going to happen to the country when the rest of us wake up and decide that we just cannot continue to live in this fashion. So it's all very tense at this particular point. Roe is a symptom. It is not the only illustration of this division. That's a valuable insight. Um, you know, one of our former High Court judges commented recently that modern elites do not demand toleration. They demand total capitulation. You have yeah. to, that it's no longer tolerance. It's no longer just accepting other people's differences. You actually have to celebrate them now, even if you vehemently disagree with them. To stand back for a moment, to just explore this a bit more, we just had a federal election in Australia. And as a former legislator, I looked on it, I thought the country is in graver da uh, danger than at any time since the 1930s, militarily and frankly, economically as well. And yet those issues did not rate the internal wars, the identity politics, the issues of the day as one Australian pitted themselves against another and another and another and another. It's not like the old days of the left versus right. There's identity groups everywhere pushing their barrows. It raises the question as to whether or not we are becoming ungovernable in the West. Well, what you raise is a very profound question. I mean, there may be a reaction against all of this. I think there will be in the United States. Uh, but even if there's a reaction, what does that mean? It means that 60% of the people will now essentially mean that the more conservative forces or the more centrist forces of the United States take over. But it doesn't mean that the 40% who used to rule are going to remain silent. There are all sorts of levers that they can pull uh, so that even if the forces of government tend to shift, it will make a large difference, but it won't restore kind of respect and tranquility to the United States in the way in which you used to do it. The argument used to be, I used to say something, you think it's wrong. I could never stop your counter speech. You would go ahead. But now if I say something that you disagree with me, you want to fire me from my position, you want to put me in jail, you want to bounce me off of Twitter. And what typically happens in these particular cases is the guys who want to do the bouncing are as often and maybe even more often wrong than the people whom they want to bounce. And so what happens is we sort of have, instead of a sign of a collective agnosticism about what's right and wrong and leaving it to smart factions to argue the thing out, what we do is we have a kind of an orthodoxy, which is so militant that it thinks that there's no restrictions on the means that it can use to advance what it regards as indubitable ends. And it's that sense from that sort of prefaces all of these things. And I have to say in the United States, um, I think Biden in many ways is worse on this issue than was Trump. Uh, my view about Trump is he's a loud mouth and a bore on many issues. Um, and he unnecessarily divided the country and on issues of trade, like, you know, he was downright stupid in many cases, uh, but he was mainly blustered. The problem about Biden, he's less blustered 
But in terms of his actions, he's much more dictatorial than Trump ever was in terms of his willingness to use executive power. In fact, I'm suing the man right now um, because what he did is he took every appoint Trump appointee who was elected to various kinds of advisory boards, of which there may be 50 in government, and he fired them all unilaterally. It had never been done by any president before. And in my view, there's no authorization for him to do it. These are not his employees. These are independent people. It's a checks and balances system. It's not an administrative system where you are my attorney general, so I could fire you if you don't want to do what I'm doing. So we have that kind of concentration there. Recently, he has announced he may declare a climate emergency. Um, and what's he going to do? Ban exports of fossil fuels? Stop fracking in the United States? He won't win on that because the Supreme Court in one of its extremely important decisions having to do with West Virginia, that there's limits to how much you can impose through administrative agency or through an executive order uh, that can fundamentally transform the way in which this country does business. And so the Obama administration wanted to essentially take a position about having the best systems of emission reduction uh, when you start to talk about a piece of equipment and use that to force people to have huge amounts of energy generated by solar and wind power, even when it was not sustainable. And the Supreme Court said you couldn't do it. Well, Biden is trying to do the same thing now through executive order. So now let's go back to what you said at the beginning and put the two pieces together, all right? Which is you said, you know, this is a case where legislative power takes place first. Here, what's happening is we're not talking about the protection of individual rights as we are in free speech cases. What you're talking about is making major changes in political structure by unilateral action of a president who's exceeding his constitutional authority. And so that's a real danger and a real menace. And the practice was done a little bit under George Bush. It was done a little bit more under Barack Obama, a little bit more under Donald Trump, though not that much. But Biden has simply exploded this far beyond any of his three immediate predecessors. So if you want to find reasons to be worried about the United States, your issue about the balance of powers, we're a presidential system, you're a parliamentary system, right? Well, our presidential system is getting out of whack. Your parliamentary system doesn't have quite that problem because you want to get rid of a government that's not impeachment, right? It's a vote of confidence. Well, you can't use a vote of confidence in a presidential system, right? It gives the Congress too much power. That's why impeachment is a much narrower offense. And our system is starting to show the strains. Uh, perhaps under these circumstances, a parliamentary system may do better. Although obviously we're not going to be able after these long times to switch America to that kind of system. And you were, in fact, in the prime minister's office. Were you a deputy prime minister, some say? Uh, yes, I was. <laughs> I was acting prime minister. Our prime minister was in your country at the time of 9-11. That, that was a fairly disconcerting week. <laughs> yes, it was rather unnerving, and I had children who saw this thing live because they were at NYU. Yeah. Um, I don't want to sound disrespectful about uh, the occupant of the Oval Office. I mean, it's one of the great changes in America. There was always such respect for the office, even if you didn't like the particular occupant in America, as I understood it. But Jared Baker's just written a critic, highly critical piece that's been uh, reprinted here in Australia. I think it was in the Wall Street Journal. Oh, yeah. So he, he's actually, very acerbic. Yes. But he does raise the question as to how much of this is, uh, is, is, is actually Joe Biden's decision making and how much of it is that his, he's always been a middle of the road sort of guy. Now he's been dragged so far to the left. Is it Biden? Is he really uh, making these decisions? Is it where he wants to go or is he simply dragged there by the people who control the Democratic Party, including staffers and organisational people? Well, I think it's both issues. You have to break it down issue by issue. So 
Joe Biden has always regarded himself as being the most pro-labor guy ever to sit inside the Congress. And everything he's done on labor issues have reflected that kind of bias. I have no doubt that that's Joe remembering what he believed before he got into office and putting it into effect. Um, when you start getting to some of the other stuff about the antitrust and bigness and badness and things like that, uh, I tend to think that there was a part of Biden which sort of stuck that. But I would say the influence of the staff on those issues has been much more powerful. But again, it's really complicated because the influence on these issues, many of them came with respect to whom did you appoint a particular officer. And so, you know, he appointed the head of the FTC, Lena Khan, and she turns out to be a dangerous autocrat, doesn't know much about her subject matter area. Um, and he got her through and then made her chair of the FTC. The organization internally is in revolt. Um, Gary Gensel was thought to be a kind of a centrist guy. Now that he's taken charge of the um, SEC, he puts out ruling after ruling, all of which are terrible. And one of my former students and a good guy named Hal Scott, now emeritus from Harvard, he was a Chicago student. He said, these were all illegal and they're going to all be challenged in court one way or another. So I don't know who's responsible for that. Um, you put into place a lot of other people at one time or another. And what you see in all of these kinds of situations is that they all moving left simultaneously, all of them even moving further left than they otherwise were. And there's literally nothing that you can do to stop. Um, so. Uh, the whole thing, I think, becomes enormously complicated um, in terms of this. It's also the other issue that people don't like to say is Biden was never very smart. I mean, it's sort of a blunt assessment of it, uh, but he was very shrewd politically. And now people think he's basically, he's too old to be precise. He's my age, right? Um, we're both 79 years of age, but you know, he has really lost it. People don't think he knows how to read a teleprompter at this point anymore. There are the constant gaffes that are going on one way or another. And so uh, there are some people kind of think it's sort of like Edith Head, Edith Wilson, taking over the United States presidency de facto when Woodrow Wilson started to fail in the last two years of his term. Right? And so you get all of these undercurrents. Uh, the Democratic Party now has person after person saying, Joe, you got to go. You can't stay after 2025. I think the number one move on the part of the Democratic Party at this point is to make sure that he doesn't move for re-election. And I believe that they are a right, and I think they're actually going to succeed. Uh, nobody wants him to resign now because nobody has the slightest respect for Kamala Harris, who's his vice president. She is generally thought to be a total loser. She has no organizational skills, no intellectual skills. Uh, she's a terrible public spokesman. She manages to mess up every program that she's been in port of charge of. So nobody wants him to go at this point. But yes, the situation in America is very parlous. And if it turns out that Donald Trump wins the Republican election, um, my guess is he will lose to a respectable Democrat. And God knows what will happen if he and Biden run. But it's a sign of genuine sort of failure of a political system have two political candidates running for the most demanding office in the world, and they're both in their late 70s or their early 80s. I mean, I'm still working, but I'm on year-to-year -year contracts, right? You know, it's not the same kind of thing. And uh, you should never, ever do that. Um, in fact, I am now in favor of a constitutional amendment which says, you know, you can serve as president up to, say, the age of 70 or 75. After that, adios. We don't want you around anymore. Ronald Reagan left office at 77 if you recall. And Biden was older when he entered office than Reagan was when he left. Um, and, and that's also a sign of something deeply wrong in this country and that entrenched and influential political powers 
seem to be able to resist anything from below. So we have a gerontocracy. Nancy Pelosi's 82 years old. She's been around for a very long time. She's third in succession to the presidency. It would be a complete catastrophe if that woman were to become president of the United States. So I think this country is in sort of very bad shape. Um, and I'm, if you notice, I'm talking mainly about structural and institutional kinds of arrangements. I'm not trying to talk about my own policy preferences, although uh, they are all systematically disregarded in that case. If you look at the foreign policy stuff, the debacle in Afghanistan, I mean, I don't even know how to describe this. A uh, friend of mine um, named Tim Kaine wrote a little piece in which what he noted was that the number of American deaths in Afghanistan in the last 24 months before we left was zero. And so we're pulling out troops to save lives. We actually worked out a modus vivendi with the Afghanis that was working. And now there's going to be mass starvation in that country. And thousands upon thousands of people are going to die and have their lives ruined because we just were in this reckless situation to start to get out by a president who still hasn't admitted that it was a boneheaded move. Um, so when you get somebody like that, um, an executive has immense power in the United States and foreign affairs. And he's utterly unable to deal with them, as far as I can tell, pretty much everywhere. He's messed up the Saudi thing. The Ukraine is going to be the worst of all things in the following sense. We're giving them just enough so that it could be bled to death before they lose. That is, either you basically break the blockade and allow them to shoot at Russian sites that are shooting at them, whether they're in Russia or not in Russia. You cannot possibly hope this war to end on it. A term. You're dealing with a complete monster and you have to treat them as such. So, I mean, uh, if you're looking at what I'm seeing about this country, I, I'm more pessimistic about the fate of the United States now than I've been in my entire professional life. And I'm trying to look to see, you know, powerful signs in the opposite direction. There are many such signs. But at this particular point, I think of Woodrow, not Woodrow Wilson, Winston Churchill. Do you remember his famous expression? Too little, too late? Yeah. Uh, well, that's, that's what I want. Is the reaction going to have that characteristic? I can't be positive about everything. And, you know, you have to continue to soldier on in whatever way you can. And I try to speak as much as I can and as forcefully I can. Um, you don't want to speak in the same kind of tones as the people on the other side of the issue. You want to be a little bit more reason, a little bit more restrained, but very intellectually insistent that we cannot continue to move in this current way. For the, um, the benefit of listeners in my own country, when you talk about red and blue, of course, red you know, are the Republican states, blue are Democrat, the opposite of the way we might think of it in this country where we call conservatives blue and Labor red. That's an important distinction. They've swapped completely, if you look at a map of America. It's the reversal has been unbelievable over the last few decades. But What's uh, the point I just want to draw out here is that you make very powerful points, but you're not making them as a reactionary against um, the blue states or the blue politicians or even blue policies. In other words, you're not simply adopting a politically uh, uh, oppositional approach to the Democrats. You are yourself a classic, I think you used the term yourself, a classic liberal. That's your position. And a classic liberal uh, I wish there were more of them in this country because most of them have become libertarian. It's quite different. They seem to know hey, the government answer to everything. A classic liberal believes in the restrained role of government. Well, of course, that's where a lot of the whole issue that Roe versus Wade surely comes from. America's a federated place where as many rights as possible were to be left at the state and local level, not centred in the institutions of a federal um 
place called Washington or, you know, there's a federal capital such as Washington. So I just, it's, it's really important, I think, that we just understand that you're not simply coming at this from a, you know, they're all terrible because they're that side of politics. You're coming from a classic liberal position. Let me go back and sort of talk about something, which is you have a similar problem in Australia resolved in a very different way. They had the same problem in Canada. There are certain issues that you would regard as federal and certain issues that you would regard as local, roughly speaking. And the basic solution in the United States that more or less took over till about 1937 was that local issues included the following kinds of activity, all manufacturing, all mining, all agriculture, all local transportation, which I mean is, you know, the bus company that's running inside Melbourne or Chicago and so forth. And that the national government was responsible for foreign affairs, pretty much exclusively, and for interstate transactions that take place, the railroads that go from California to New York, where its function was to make sure they could run smoothly without any state erecting blockades or barriers to stop this from going. And you could look at these earlier cases, and for the most part, they were pretty faithful to that basic condition. And in 1987, I wrote an article called The Proper Scope of the American of the Commerce Clause, which said that was the right synthesis. And everything turned over quite quickly in a couple of cases in which it turned out that manufacture, agriculture, mining, and everything else was now subject to federal regulation if it turned out that it had some impact on the way in which business was done in other states. And the answer is, every time you do any business in one state by selling goods into another state, you're going to influence the relative price of goods in both states. And so what happens is, all of a sudden, the federal economy uh, could be governed by the federal government from top to bottom. And my initial foray into this issue some now 35 years ago was a strong attack on that particular position for exactly the reasons that you're starting to say. Um, what happens if you put all the eggs in one basket, um, the ability to cartelize a nation is much more powerful. It's run by the central government and the ability to run it into a ground is that way. And you want intergovernmental competition that can only happen if states have certain degrees of power. And so if you want to worry about minimum wage laws, it's going to be a very different game. If every time you put a high minimum wage law in place, you're going to disadvantage your state workers to those of out-of-state people. So you're going to be careful as to what you do. And then the moment you start doing this federally, uh, you could raise it to a much higher level because the other states cannot lower these things in a stickier way. So uh, what happens is the concentration of power in Washington, which I deplore as you deplore, came about because what happens is the, the, the progressives of the 1930s says every national problem requires a national solution. Uh, but it turned out the only national solutions that are required, uh, national power, are cartels. And if you go back and you look at the history of the Roosevelt administration, they were a cartel machine. They put together hundreds of these things in very short periods. The first effort to do so was struck down in a case called Schechter. Uh, but after that, they did it piecemeal. And you then look at the New Deal legislation. It's the Motor Vehicle Act, which is nationwide regulation of rates, Fair Labor Standards Act, nationwide regulation of, um, of wages. If you start then looking at the CAB, it's national regulation of the airline rates of one form or another. You look at the Agricultural Adjustment Act, it's natural regulation of agricultural prices and so forth. These were all cartelization type mechanisms that were put into play. They continued to hurt the United States. Um, the only saving grace has been that for the most part, uh, there are political restraints on Congress's ability to do that. 
But those tend to be diminished when you have very aggressive democratic government. So I would love to return to the earlier regime. But as you know, once you break a series of constraints, it's very difficult to put the things back into place in an effective sort of way. So these have become political battles. And the essential two-sentence summary of why America is a very different place now from what it was in the 1930s or before the Depression is economic protection of property rights is at an all-time low, national power. Uh, with respect to the regulation of the central governments at an all-time high. And then the conspicuous exceptions to that are cases like Roe and Obergefell, where all of a sudden a progressive who champions generally strong government power flips everything around, and now there is a series of fundamental independent individual rights that nobody else can challenge. So that's the political landscape that you have in the United States, and it's sufficiently durable uh, that I am rather skeptical that we can have a clean break from what I regard as a kind of pessimistic situation. 1985, I wrote a book called Takings, Private Property and the Power of Eminent Domain, which was universally panned. Like a shaggy book, one of my colleagues wrote, this book will tempt every passerby to give it a kick, in which I projected what was going to happen uh, because of the emergence of strong federalism and the weakness of individual property rights. And unfortunately, you know, 37 years later, I kind of think, oh, I wish I were false, but I kind of think that what the worst nightmare I had is sort of coming through. So um, again, you know, I could be hopeful as a matter of theory and certainly would try to articulate my positions wherever I'm going to be heard. Uh, but uh, the intolerance on this particular thing and the impatience on these particular issues, even in academic circles, means that it's a very hard slog to reach the public at large. I try to do what I can. I hope speaking in Australia will give you a little bit of courage to make sure that you don't follow our particular path. But um, it is, in fact, a very dicey situation that we're facing in this country. Well, you've been very generous with your time. To bring the, the boat into the dock, so to speak, um, plainly, this sort of division, uh, probably in the eyes of the autocrats, uh, and we know who they are around the world, and they're becoming extraordinarily powerful and very, very dangerous, this sort of degeneracy, that's the way they describe it, and division and lack of intent. And militarily, I begin to wonder now about lack of you know, relative capability as well, I think makes the world a much more dangerous place. The one thing that we would say that Trump got right was he called out China. That seems to have unified the Americans. So the question is, do you actually think the deteriorating global outlook might bring people back to a sense of, gee, we actually have a common air enemy and it's an exterior enemy or enemies. Well, the most we frightening picture up. that we, yeah, the most frightening picture we saw on the paper this morning was a picture of Ergodon, the Iranian big shot and Putin standing together arm in arm facing the West. So essentially, you know, Turkey's a member of NATO, right? Mm. And Iran doesn't want to be a member of NATO. So that every single thing that we start to face now is, they may be in alliance against us, and they have no internal opposition, and they have no qualms about using their force. Uh, Trump was right to pull out of the Iran nuclear power deal. He had no guarantee that they would follow it, and he was going to shovel huge amounts of money in that direction. Um, Barack Obama was a very weak president on foreign affairs because he just could not believe in the evil of the people with whom he was dealing. At root, Obama was kind of a moral relativist. You know, I'm sure, you're sure, there's nothing particularly special about America. We had slavery, Russia had communism, they're all the same kind of bad situation. That's just a colossal misstatement of the way in which the world starts to operate. So he started to create the retreat. 
I think Trump had a better instinct on this and try to reverse it, but Biden is whole hog into this situation. He's doing something in Uganda, but well, not Uganda, Ukraine, but not enough. Um, his situation in the Middle East has been terrible. He has very bad relationships, I think, with Europe. Um, his position against China is waffling. And one of the things you should know about the United States is we are not big enough militarily now to fight a two-front war. Um, and in fact, you need not we used to have 6% of the GDP in the United States was devoted to military expenditures in the 1950s. It's now under 2% on um, these things. But what's happened is we have more theaters in which we're facing genuine opposition on the one hand. And it turns out the way military operations work, they have to become more and more specialized so that troops are not easily movable from a tropical comet into a, you know, into an Arctic situation. You have to have very specialized equipment, weaponry, and all the rest of that stuff. So if anything, you need more weapons per unit area than otherwise. Uh, but we are in a dreamland that this is not going to happen. Uh, you go back and you start reading the British sentiments in 1936 and 1937 about Herr Hitler, right? Mr. Hitler will not uh, put these designs forward. One of the things to remember is that if somebody is a leader, he's a cutthroat leader in many cases, and they are not bound by the same kind of moral sensibilities that bind ordinary people. So you can't sort of think of them as anything other than outliers. And to sort of say, well, I would never do anything like this, and none of my friends would ever do anything like this, doesn't mean that there isn't the one person in a million who will do that kind of stuff, who has killed and stepped on enough people on the way to power, that in fact, he's going to be ruthless in the way in which it is exercised. Hitler, Stalin, Mao, they're all like that. And Ergodon has done that. Putin has certainly done that. The Shahs have been displaced by people in Iraq, in Iran who have done this. And it's really important when you run a foreign policy to understand that you're not dealing with friends for whom you always want to take the first step forward in good faith. You're dealing with people who, if you take the first step forward, they'll cut off your leg. And it's a very different kind of negotiations. And at this particular point, I do not think in the power positions in Washington, there's sufficient realism about the nature of the enemy and its determination and its increased resources. We know what their published numbers are with respect to defense appropriation, but there's nothing which says that those are the full limit of that. You can bury budgetary items anywhere you want to put them if you're a totalitarian party. And so you have very, very weak evidence unless you go much deeper to figure out the size. So yes, I think on that particular issue, there's a loss of moral courage and moral purpose in the West. I think Biden is that way. I think Obama is that way. Strangely enough, I don't think Trump was suffering that, that particular illusion, but his unwillingness to join the Pacific trade arrangement, right, was this colossal blunder because um, he didn't understand the importance of trade cooperation. So I mean, he bears some of the gain. He wasn't terrific on Afghanistan, but was surely better than Biden or Obama. Um, there's enough blame to go around, but uh, essentially what has happened is there is no reason to believe now in the power of the Western hegemony. And what happens is as the balance starts to get closer and closer, all of a sudden it starts to make sense for our enemies to think about more and more aggressive, even if piecemeal action against the United States and its allies. Well, that's a, a sobering note to finish on. Thank you very much for your clarity. Uh, and uh, all I can say is, Let's all of us press on to the best of our ability for as long as we can for the sake of those who follow us and indeed for those around the world who depend upon the rules-based system that was put in place after the Second World War, which you began with. Yes. 
Thank you for having me. And I agree with that sentiment. We're not at 1945. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a great honor to have you. You've been listening to John Anderson Direct. For more information, visit johnanderson.net.au.